Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. All right, well, good morning. I know a bit of an odd passage if you're a guest. You're like, what are we studying today? Like, what's even happening? But we've been in a journey uh, in the book of Genesis. We go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we've come all the way to chapter 9, and we've slowed down a little bit to do a three-week uh, series on the life of Noah, and this is sort of the last installment of that um, study. And so today we're looking sort of at the end of his life. This is after the ark, after the flood, and they're trying to rebuild their life. And so God introduces this concept of a covenant or God's relationship with us. And so we'll get to that in a moment, but I want to give you a heads up of like, hey, why are we reading this passage? Did we just pick this randomly? But we always journey through books. Uh, I got one announcement before we get started, just a special announcement. Um, You know, Christmas season is uh, a lot of time for us to think about generosity of caring for our family or our friends or our neighbors. And we know that God has called us to be generous the way that he was generous. Christmas is the remembrance of God giving us his son who would live a perfect life on the cross and raise again. And because God has given to us generously, we want to give generously. We want to give generously individually and as a church. And so here's what we're going to do as a church to be generous this month. Uh, We're doing something called the Care Campaign. And so if you're a member or uh, you call this uh, church your home, you know that as a church, we give away 10% of the tithes and offerings that you give every year. We give away 10% every year. In fact, I think this year it's actually 12% that we're giving away. But the month of December, we want to add an additional 10%. So this month, whatever tithes and offerings that you give, if you call Code Brighton your home, 10% of that is going to go away to our local partner called the Foster Box. Um, If you guys are familiar with our church, we have a huge emphasis for foster care and adoption. I've got two little girls that were in the foster care system in our state, and by God's grace, we're able to adopt them. And the Foster Box is a wonderful organization. They've got uh, different storage units set up all throughout the greater Boston area. And if you're a foster parent and you get a phone call about a placement in your home to take care of a little one, um, you can call them and say, hey, I've got a little one coming to my house, but I don't have clothes or a crib or a, a car seat or toys. Can you help me? And they give those things away to you for free. It's incredible. So you can donate money. You can donate your own items. If you have nephews or nieces or kids yourself and you want to give away those items, the Foster Box is the place to go. And so what we're going to do as a church is we want to be generous. So uh, if you call Coa Bright in your home, we want you to dig deep this month and think, okay, how do I maybe give something additional than what I typically give of my tithes and offerings as a gift to the uh, ministry of our church? And then we're going to give away 10% of that uh, by the end of the year. Um, that was a really big ministry for our family. We called the Foster Box when Kiana first moved in and we're like, okay, we got a two-year-old coming in. We need a car seat. We need clothes. We need toys. Like, what do you do for a two-year-old? How do you operate this? What do we need? And the Foster Box jumped right on us and helped us out. And it was so tremendous. And then our church, of course, you guys jumped in and helped us out. So we want to bless foster care. My wife's smiling. She remembers that too. Um, and then you're actually going to hear in a few weeks... Uh, one of my pastor friends, John, it was his wife that actually got us connected with the Foster Box, and you'll hear a lot more about them. So this month, be thinking about what that looks like for you. If you're a regular, if you're a guest, uh, this just 
kind of an update for you. But if you call our church home, we really want you to think about the care campaign and how can we give 10% as a church to them. All right, no more announcements. Let's jump into the Bible because that's what we are here in this time for. Uh, last week, just to remind you, we started this idea of covenant. And so God is with Noah and God starts talking to Noah about that. He says, I will establish my covenant with you. And so last week we said, what does it mean that God makes a covenant with us? And we see in the Old Testament, all types of covenants God gives with different people. And then Jesus, who is God, comes along and tells us about a new covenant. So God's always been a covenant keeping God. But the question is, what does that mean? What does it mean that God makes and keeps covenants? Well, we talked about that a covenant is different than a contract, right? A covenant is a promise that even if the other party is unfaithful, you remain faithful. And that's the type of relationship that God has with us. He covenants with us. He makes promises to love us and never forsake us, to work out things for our good. He gives promises to us. And even if we are not faithful, God remains faithful. And so that's different than a contract, right? And we talked about how if you have a phone bill, you pay that phone bill and you have a contract. I give you this money, Verizon or AT&T, and you give me this service. And if you don't uphold or they don't uphold the agreement, what happens? The contract is null and void or there's some sort of penalty. But we're noticing that God is entering this covenant type language with Noah. And so what does it mean, guys, for us today through Noah that God is faithful when we are not? So what does it mean that God has given us a covenant, a promise, a relationship with him. So that's what we're gonna see this week. And we're gonna see it in three different ways. What does the covenant mean for you? Three different things. So let's start in verse one and let's walk through this together. It says, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that's familiar language as we've been journeying through Genesis, right? We saw God say that with who? Adam and Eve. And so we're noticing that the flood is like a recreation moment. We know that Adam and Eve in their lineage had brought sin into the world. And so through the flood, God was doing a restart, a refresh, a recreation. And so just like God started with Adam and Eve, be fruitful, be multiply, glorify on the earth. God's, uh, we are his image bearers. And so we are to multiply on the earth, God is saying, so that his image would be filling up the earth even more. So it's really about God, not just about us. He said that with Adam and Eve, but now he's saying that with, no, it's a recreation moment. But the question I have for you is what do you think the blessing is though that God gave to Noah in verse one? It said, God bless Noah, but what's the blessing? We thought about that before. Well, I think the blessing that God gives here in verse one is in fact the commands that God gives in verse one as well. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. The commands in this verse are actually the blessings themselves. The commands were the path to blessing and flourishing for Noah and his family. And guys, the same is true for us today with God's word. Guys, when we trust God's word, when we follow God's word, we flourish the way we were designed to. So the blessing is God giving his commands. And when we as Christians in the New Testament follow God's commands and we trust his ways for our flourishing, that is the blessing. So the fact that God speaks and has spoken in God's word is the blessing for us. 
We talked about several weeks ago, if you're sort of a Boston native or you've lived here for a few years, it's like Starro Drive. Remember that when sort of the new time of year, everyone sort of starts moving in in September? When you drive your car on Star Road Drive and you don't follow the signs, you don't follow the commands, it says don't drive underneath this bridge if your car is of a certain height. And then what happens every year? We see on the new social media, some U-Haul drives through and just gets the top completely like sawed off the top of this U-Haul, right? It's the same concept. There's these commands in place to bless the people, to keep them from harm, to protect them, to help their joy increase. God is doing the same thing. And I don't want your life to be like those who drive on Starro Drive with a U-Haul. I don't want just the top sawed off and you struggle and you hurt and have heartache. So what's the blessing that God gave to Noah? It's his commands. And that's a hard thing for us in 2022 to think someone commanding us, telling us how to live would be for our good. But listen, if God really is the creator and he really made you, he really designed you, then don't you think he would have the owner's manual and how you and I are to best operate, how to best live, where joy would be found, where flourishing and hope is? That's what God's doing. So that's part of the covenant that we're learning is God's blessing is this way of showing how to live unto his glory, for God's glory and our good. But this is not what happens with Noah. It's not what happens with Noah. Noah, we see in the beginning of chapter six, Noah is faithful and he's righteous and he's following God. And so he has this great moment where we learn where at 75 years, he builds this ark and the animals come to this ark and Noah is telling his friends and neighbors about God and how they need to turn from their ways of harm. It says that there's corruption and violence in the land. And Noah's like, guys, turn, turn from that. And no one listens, no one does. And so God brings his hand of justice, his, his righteous punishment on the earth. And we talked about how hard that is for us as people to kind of grapple with that God brings justice, but that's a good thing. When there's harm and there's corruption, there's violence being done, we want someone to step in and say, no, stop. You can't do that. That's not right. We need to protect life. So in fact, that's what God does with the ark scene. And we see Noah's this righteous man. He's following God's commands, but then something happens. Noah begins to turn his own way. He begins to stop following God's commands. He begins to go his own route. And that's what we're gonna see what happens. He begins to trust his own gut. He listens to his own heart. He does what he wants to do and it gets him and others in harm's way. So church, even as we begin to unpack this, let me ask you, are you doing the same thing? You know, we might have that moment in our life when we were maybe a few years younger, we just became a Christian, if that's you, and you really were like, man, I wanna know God. I wanna read his word. I wanna pray. I wanna walk. And you remember those feelings of being kind of close with God. But then over the course of time and stress or maybe storms in your life like Noah and the flood, you begin to kind of follow your own path. That's what we're going to see what happened with Noah. And let me ask, is there any area in your life that maybe that's happening? Now, if you're a guest, that's not, that's a rhetorical question. Don't shout it out. That'd be awkward for all of us if you just start sharing that. But the honest question is still there. Are you like Noah? And you begin to follow your own path. You listen to your own heart. You trust your own wisdom. And you begin to bring harm and hurt in your life when God has given us a blessing of his commands. That's the first thing I want you to sort of unpack. So here's the first point. If you're taking notes, you can see it on the screen, jot it down. God's covenant that means that he wants you to flourish. God's promises that he gives, his covenant is all about you flourishing. And flourishing means for you to operate in the way that God designed you to operate. He built you a certain way and he wants us to live in a certain way for your good, for your blessing. 
for your safety, for your provision, for your joy, for your happiness. And we're going to learn from Noah that it's not found in certain places of refuge and certain substances. And we're going to find out in Noah's life. But that's the first thing we need to see here is God's covenant means he wants us to flourish. So what happened with Noah? What is the downfall of Noah that I'm talking about? Let's look at verse nine, starting in verse 18 here. It says, the sons of Noah who were sent forth from the ark, they had three guys, here are their names, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then the author tells us that Ham was the father of Canaan. Verse 19, these three were the sons of Noah. And from these three, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. And we'll talk about what those names mean and how we see ethnicity, which is a good thing, and diversity being a good thing. We see that uh, start from these three men and then the whole earth is filled through them. We'll talk about that next week. Verse 20, here's the downfall. Noah began to be a man of the soil. So he's a blue collar worker. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, this is a, a dignified work. He's working with his hands. He's blue collar. He's building a vineyard, it says. He planted a vineyard. Again, there's nothing wrong with uh, wine or alcohol within itself if we drink in moderation. But look what happens. Verse 21, Noah drank of the wine and became drunk. And he lay uncovered in his tent. Now, what we could do is just sit here and talk about how alcohol is wrong and how drunkenness is bad and how laying naked in a tent is a bad idea. All of those are still true. Okay, all of those are still true. But I want you to see that maybe you and I aren't getting drunk, but we are turning to certain things like tents and like wine to help us cope. Guys, just think about your life. We need to be a little imaginative just for a second. Imagine that God told you to build an ark and you've never seen a massive flood and you were like pretty well known at your company and your job and your roommates. You're known as a sane person. You have your faith, but everyone's like fine with you. And then you're like, hey, I'm gonna build an ark in my free time. And it's like cute for a week. It's a little weird for a month. And then years pass by. 75 years and your coworkers keep telling you the same thing. Hey, bro, you're crazy. Like your kids are telling you, dad, I don't know if this ark thing's gonna happen. Your wife's looking at you and like, babe, I haven't seen a lot of rain. What's happening? We're giving away vacation time to this. What's going on? You're doing this for 75 years of your life. Would you be stressed at all? And then, now I love my family. My wife's sitting right here. It's dangerous waters to me walking in. But if I'm stuck on a boat with my wife and my kids and a bunch of animals with poop for 371 days, as we talked about, I'm gonna be pretty stressed. <laughs> and I've been on a cruise with my wife. It's been wonderful, but my kids weren't there. That's why it was wonderful, okay? I love my kids too. I love my kids too. You know me. But you're pretty stressed, right? And I want you to notice that when you and I, when three things happen, when there's stress with work, there's some sort of stress with transition. Noah went from being a regular guy to an ark builder to seeing everything on the ark, everything he looks out the window and everything's destroyed. The place he shopped with his wife, the favorite restaurant, which of course was probably a Chick-fil-A, was destroyed. You know, everything's like ruined in his life. Friends, family, it's a terrible scene. And he's in a huge transition moment. Guys, stress at work Big transitions in your life, new relationships, new jobs, new coworkers, hardships with your family, and a struggle with identity and purpose. I mean, wasn't that Noah's job for 75 years to build an ark? And he starts to make it his purpose and his identity rather than someone that God loved. He made it all about work. When those three storms combine, stress at work, transition, and you start finding your identity in your work, what happens? You begin to turn to other things. 
to satisfy you. And that's what we see with Noah. And guys, as we're thinking about Noah's story, it's easy to like point blame and be like, bro. Well, actually, it's, for me, it's actually easy to like recognize, like, bro, I'd be stressed too, man. Like, I don't know if I find myself up like naked in some tent somewhere, but like, who's to know if I'm going to build an ark for 75 years? I hope that's not the case for me or for you. But before we point the fingers too quick, where do you and I run when you're stressed? When you're like really just weary and burnt out, your kids are wearing you out, your job's stressful, like your, that project's due and that coworker is just irritating you. All the, the school assignments are lining up. You've got exams coming up and you're just stressed. Like your caseload is a lot as a social worker. Like where do you run to when you're like really stressed? What wines do you turn to or what tents do you seek refuge in? And guys, as a church, you know, we're not here to call out all these types of sin, but we're to call you in to a better tent, a better relationship with God. In fact, God even says that his blood is the new wine of the new covenant. God's even setting that a relationship and a trust and a sort of a casting off of our anxieties to him is better than wine. It's a new wine. God even calls himself the, the tabernacle the place of refuge and rest and security. That's a better tent than some tent you end up naked in. Guys, I want you to really think about where do you turn to? And guys, to be honest with you, not to have a weird moment for our church, but I, I do think sometimes we need to consider our relationship with alcohol. That is something for us to think and consider. Do I run for alcohol in order for a social gain? Am I drinking too much to deal with the stress of my work or relationships? My goal is not to call you out, but to call you in to something better. I know that life in Boston's hard and it's stressful. It's difficult. Very much I've lived here only for five years. And for some of you who lived here longer, it's fast paced. There's lots of turnover. There's lots of loneliness. There's a lot of transients happening. So you build a relationship for a couple of years and then someone moves. It's hard. But the question is, have you been like Noah and in your stress, you turn to alcohol? My goal is not to condemn you through that, but to invite you to a better tent and a new wine, a new way of walking with Jesus, where we cast our anxieties on him and we bring our burdens to him. Does that make sense? So today I'm not trying to call names out, or, but I want you to really think about what's your relationship with alcohol? And so that we're not condemning that issue, think about your own life. Where do you run to? It could be pornography. It could be sort of serial dating. It could be finances in like an anxious way of managing your money and making sure all the things are where they should be and your stocks are okay and stewardship is fine, but anxiousness around that is not. Where's your wine? Where's your tent that you often run to? And do you see that God is pointing to a better way to live? So let's see what happens in this weird moment where you got Noah naked in a tent. I joked last week, I'll say it again. I have a dad joke every week, but I arguably think that this was the beginning of NASCAR where someone's like naked in a tent somewhere drunk, but maybe that's just because I'm from North Carolina and I've saw that a lot. But let's move on. Awkward, bad joke. I won't do that again. Don't send me an email. Sorry, guys. Okay, verse 22. So here's what happens. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers who were outside, then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on their shoulders and they walked backwards and they like threw it behind them, like, and they covered the nakedness of their father. And it, the, I love how it like says it again. So I'm repetitive and it makes me feel a little bit better when the Bible's repetitive. It just says the same thing again in the next verse. Their faces were turned so they did not say their father's nakedness. 
Just for clarification, everyone, we need to know that says. So 24, what happens? Noah awoke from his wine. So he was drunk. He awakes from this moment. Don't know what time it is. Two o'clock the next day, not sure. And he knew what his youngest son had done to him. And he said, cursed be Canaan, his son, a servant of the servants, shall he be to his brothers. So this is a really awkward passage. And the question is, what in the world did Ham do to his dad in the tent? Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time here just because it's awkward. But some commentators suggest that there was some sort of physically inappropriate thing that happened. Not sure, but there could be something like that. Other commentators suggest that uh, he was pranked in some embarrassing way, that Ham embarrassed his dad in some way. And other commentators suggest that Ham just dishonored Noah by mocking him and gossiping to others and his brothers about what happened in the tent. I'm not sure what happened, but it's a terrible scene. Either way, it wasn't good. But we also see in this moment, I think the point of this is to see a Christ connection. In Noah's most embarrassing moment we see in the passage, what happens? God provides a covering. He provides a covering. And noticed who provided the covering and what that points towards. The son covered the sins. Shem and Japheth, they took a garment. They took a garment and they put it on their shoulders. Are we talking about the cross here? Like, do you see how this is pointing somewhere else? Shem and Japheth took garments. They laid it on their shoulders. They walked backward and they covered the nakedness of their father. This one obscure odd verse in the Old Testament is pointing us to a better son, pointing us to Jesus how Jesus himself in love would give us his righteousness, his perfect moral standard before God as a garment. He would lay that on us. And guys, what I love about this story is that what we, we are Noah. You and I are Noah. We are face down at times in our sin. We're passed out. We're unable to help ourselves in our sin And that's when God's son came to forgive us and forgives us now. It doesn't say that Noah picked himself up and got himself clean and covered himself up. No, the son came and covered him. Guys, let me remind you, if today there has been a wine or a tent that you've run to, a person, a place, a substance that you've run to, there is a son who has come to forgive what happened. Wherever tent you ran, you weren't outside of God's sight. God meets us in that place wherever you ran this past week, wherever you ran this past month. And here, the son has covered you if you've trusted in him. He's forgiven your sin. He's loved you. He's given you his righteousness. And you and I can walk with him rightly. My friends, we are reminded that God wants us to walk this way. God's covenant means he wants you to flourish. So let us not be like Noah and let us not run to other wines and other tents. God's covenant promises mean he wants you to flourish. That's the first thing. Are we okay for point number one? That's a super awkward. I don't ever, by the way, uh, when I was going through seminary and like a passage, I don't dream of preaching that passage. <laughs> Let's talk about nakedness and drunkenness in a tent. This will be fun. What do we draw from that? But what we want to do with God's word is not just me stand up and give my opinions to you or tell you what fun new thing we should talk about as a church. We do believe that God has spoken through his word and I want to teach it to you. And I think every passage points us to Christ and the beauties of his love and forgiveness and his ways for you to walk. And I want to give it to you every week. 
So guys, we're gonna walk through awkward passages at our church. If you're like new, you're like, do we do this every week? Well, whatever comes up in the passage, we wanna bring up because God wrote it down for us for some good reason. And I want you to know it. Okay, number two, God's covenant means that all human life is valuable. So we gotta back up a little bit, go to the very beginning of this passage. And we learn what this means about God's covenant, how he wants us to walk with him. Verse two, so Noah has been blessed by God. And he says, go and multiply on the earth. And then he starts talking about animals. So he switched from humans to animals and he's gonna go back to humans in a moment. Verse two, God says, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast, Noah, and of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, all fish in the sea into your hand, they are to be delivered. So the animals, guys, having a fear and a dread is all about God's protection for humanity. And guys, I don't know if you've been camping or you've been to New Hampshire or Maine or something like that. And you can just notice that this is true in the wild, that like typically under general circumstances, like a bear isn't gonna like come up to you and like maul you as a general rule. Like if something happened or it's hungry or something like that, there's gotta be some extra circumstances. Or if you go swimming with sharks and like you cut your arm on purpose, like there is gonna be things, but as a general rule, God has put this sort of fear and dread in animals' hearts in order to protect us. In order to, like, because again, on the ark, they're just hanging out together. And I don't know if that was a safe thing or not a safe thing, but God was trying to put some space between animals and humanity in order to protect humanity. So we're learning that God's covenant means that human life is valuable. He doesn't want us to be destroyed or harmed by animals. And so he puts a general rule in animals' hearts that they have this fear of humans, this dread that comes on. I don't have to worry right now that the coyote is going to come through those doors and eat me. Like that's not, we do have some coyotes in Boston, which is odd, but there's got to be some extra circumstances in their life or whatever's going on with them. So it's all about how God has infused a value for humans in his creation. Guys, that's why our generation, millennials and and Gen Z, there's this sort of surge in us for justice. If someone's being marginalized, someone's being oppressed, someone's being hurt, what do we want? We want justice. So we join activist groups or parades or we give financially for what? Justice. That's kind of what's happening here. God is wanting to value human life. So he puts something in the heart of his creation as a general rule. Verse three, he says, every moving thing that lives shall be for food for you. As I've given you green plants, I give you everything. Notice that this is a little bit different from the garden scene. Remember the garden scene, there was no eating of animals in the garden scene with Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2. But now there is an eating of animals. And just notice this sort of Christ connection language that he's saying that I give you everything. That's going to point us eventually to Christ and how he gave up his own life for the benefit of nourishing the hunger and of our hearts for a God and a relationship with him. So even the fact that God's saying, I give you everything, he's going to ultimately give his son for us. But he says, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is blood. So we're learning this passage that you can eat meat, uh, but also God's value in human life. He's saying, I want, it, I want it cooked. I want some sort of health to happen. Now we're not going to get into nowadays, do you like your steak rare, medium rare? That's not the concept per se, but God is trying to value your life. So during those days, don't have a bunch of blood in your meat because it's going to harm you. There's not healthy ways to maybe prepare food to make sure it's going to be okay. So God is, again, what's the point of this? Eat meat, no blood in it. It's to value you, to keep you safe. That rule is not to limit you, it's to liberate, to provide freedom and health and care. God's covenant means that your life is valuable. 
It's meaningful. Verse five, and for your lifeblood, he turns it to people. He says, well, for you, if your blood was to be poured out, I will require a reckoning. You see God being a God of justice here, standing in for the weak. For every beast, I will require it from man. And from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning from the life of that man. For whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And then here's the reason why. For God made man in his own image. Now guys, this few verses really is the foundation for a legal system here. What you see here is that you sort of see this first sort of law being put into play in humanity. And we know that God's put this in our hearts that we should value human life, but we're seeing for the first time in verse six here, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For why? For God has made mankind, you and me, in his image. He shared part of his characteristics with us. We can love because he's love. We can hate sin and injustice and harm because God does. We can be gracious because God is gracious. We can act righteously because God is righteous. We're made in his image. So you and I are valuable. Our neighbors and friends are valuable to us. This right here is a foundation for a legal system. God is not setting up a retaliation system here. Meaning you can just, if someone hurts you, you hurt them back. Someone kills your friend, you just kill them back. He's not saying this is how you personally deal with your relationships. He's saying that through this principle, I want a legal system set up where we can righteously deal with violence and corruption. The reason why the flood had to happen in the first place. That's what we see happening. God is highlighting the value of human life here. And guys, what this means is that Genesis is making a radical claim in this passage that since every person is made in the image of God, every one of you in this room has a measurable worth, value, and significance just because you're made in the image of God, not because of what you do, not because of how much money you make, not because where you grew up, not because who you voted for, not because of what activist group you're in. You are valuable because God shared his characteristics with you. God shared his heart with you. God shared his attributes with you. You're made in his image and he loves you. That's why you're significant. That's why you're valuable. Can you add value through your work? Absolutely. Is your work so important? Absolutely. But that's not why you're important. Your work's important because you add importance to it. Does that make sense? Life therefore should be protected. And if life is violated or harmed, a legal system of justice and consequence should be put into action. And hasn't that risen up? in our hearts in the past few years, that's a good thing that we've seen. And so what we're learning from this is that life and its worth is inherent. You're, you're just born with this worth. And therefore we can't treat each other with this sort of utilitarian view of worth. That if you do a lot, or if you have a lot of to value, if you have this education, if you make so much money, if you have this position, then you're valuable. That's not how we should treat people. Guys, if you saw in the news, uh, it's wonderful. We had, you know, uh, the prince and princess over, uh, you know, we saw in the news and they watched the Boston Celtics game and like all the city was like, stop what you're doing. What outfit are they wearing, right? And everyone's like, oh, look at the outfit she's got on. Oh, look at him. Oh, I can see some bald spots. You know, it's like, everyone's like, what are they wearing and what's happening, right? And that's good. That's fine. But what if we treated everyone with the same sort of dignity and honor? 
We cared for them, make sure they got where they were going safely. We treat them with respect and honor. Now, we're not going to roll out a green carpet, which I think they did for one of their events. I can't do that for you every week while you're here. But as a church, we want to treat everyone with dignity and honor. And that's the point, not just because they're royalty, because they're made in God's image. And what if we treat everyone that way? Guys, this has massive implications for the value of human life. We've talked about this one other time in scripture. And that's why every time it comes up, we bring it up. Only when scripture brings up, do we talk about this? This is hard for us, guys. The concept of human life is difficult. This is massive implications for the value of life, ethics, race, justice. Because humans carry out the image of God, because he is supremely worthy in value and significance, then we are to treat others like this. This is why our church seeks to care for the poor and the marginalized, because they are made in the image of God. This is why we care for racial reconciliation in our city, in whatever denomination we're a part of, because every race and ethnic group matters because we're made in the image of God. This is hard for us, but this is why even our church would want to seek to protect the unborn and we want to care for the mothers. Both, why? Because they're both made in the image of God. Guys, this is why we pursue foster care and adoption. Because that life, those families, the heartache of what's happened, those people matter. Their lives are significant from the womb to the tomb. The entire life, every age, every stage, every race, every person matters because we're made the image of God. So this is hard for us, especially in 2022, especially in a more progressive city which I'm not hating on, I'm just saying it's it's difficult for us, but where do we get the concept of what's valuable? Is it from our political leaders or is it genuinely from a God who has made us in his image? So when is life valuable and why is it valuable? We see from the first moment of conception, it's valuable. And then every moment that that person has life is significant. Not when they're just hooked up to a monitor at the very end of their life, or not when they're in the womb beforehand. Not an easy topic. Guys, what I would love to do, if you have more, if you want to push back, if you have conversations, please talk with me. Let's dialogue through this. Maybe there's some things that I need to learn from you or you want to share. We can dialogue through this, but let's press in to make sure that our beliefs are centered in on God's word and not just what our political preference or political perspective would have. Does that make sense? We're going to always try to get our opinions from the scripture and not from culture. Does that make sense? It's a hard one to walk through. You guys okay to move on to the next one? God's covenant means a human life is valuable. Okay, this is a lot better. The first two were awkward. We're a lot better point for this one, okay? You guys ready? Okay, last one here. God's covenant means that he is faithful to fulfill his promises, something we can all agree on in every step, okay? God's covenant means he is faithful to his promise. So this next part of the scripture, God's already told us that human life is valuable and here's how we can protect it and honor it. God's told us, hey, because I love you, here's how I want you to live in order to experience me. And when you live out of step, I'm going to forgive you and love you and show you a new way. And then we see that no matter what, no matter what choices we make, God is going to be faithful to his promise to you. And part of that promise is to lead you a better way. There's three things I want you to notice about this promise. We're going to go through them fairly quickly, but you know what happens when I say that. So here we go. We're going to notice God's promise, the picture and the purpose of what God gives in this last couple of verses. Here's the first thing, the promise God gives. God gives a promise not to destroy 
the earth anymore, not to make it perish, the people on the earth with the flood. Verse eight, here's the promise. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you. I love that about God. He is the initiator. He's always the first one being proactive in the relationship. This is so different, by the way, than any other major world religion, other major world religions, which I'm not hating on in this moment, but I'm just showing you the wonderful difference is that in Christianity, God comes to humanity because humanity is lost and broken and struggling and hurting. In other world religions, you've got to climb the mountain to get to God through morality, through some eightfold path, through kindness, through sort of giving to the church, or you got to do some uh, moral act. But the beautiful thing is that God is saying, I will establish, I will come to you. I will pursue you. I love that about God. I love that about Christianity, that God is coming to us. God is coming to us. I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, verse 10. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. Just notice in this moment that God is also sort of recreating this garden scene with Adam and Eve that animals and people were in harmony and and both are flourishing. And God is also pointing to a new heavens and a new earth with this, where there is people and animals living in perfect harmony, all displaying the beauty of God. And we're gonna all see that one day if you're a Christian in heaven. Verse 11, so God says again, I will establish my covenant with you. God's a repeating God. Amen, makes me feel seen, right? I establish my covenant with you. Then he says two things, that never again I shall cut off flesh from the waters of the flood and I will never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Guys, this promise is wonderful for us, but this promise, it's not just great that like floods won't happen to us anymore. That's like a great thing that the flood won't like take all of the human race out. We know that some floods still happen. Katrina, all of those are, are terrible natural disasters, awful. God is saying that I won't destroy all of the human race again. But is that like the only thing this is pointing towards? I think this promise is pointing us to another promise. The promise that you and I are very familiar with if you're a Christian from John three sixteen. For God so loved this world, and that's why God told him I'm not gonna flood it again. But God says again, for God so loved the world that he won't just not send a flood, but that he will send his son. I love how it points forward. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not perish just like the flood caused those to perish, but have eternal life. Guys, this promise is much more about life now and life in eternity. This is the beautiful picture of what God is giving us. He is promising us that there will be no destruction, no sentencing of justice, no eternal wrath from God if we would turn and place our faith in Jesus. We're learning that God poured all his wrath, the flood of his wrath, he poured it on Jesus so he could pour on the flood of his love to you. That's what we're seeing. That's what this promise is pointing to. Jesus took the flood of God's wrath so you could take the flood of his love. That's what this promise is pointing us towards. And if you've not yet trusted in Christ, this is your invitation to see this promise. God is holding out for you. Whatever tent you have found yourself in, you don't have to clean yourself up, do better, try harder, be more religious. God has come to cover you. Take your sins, bear it on himself, so that you could have freedom in life in a relationship with him. God, I love that God is, pro- God is faithful to fulfill all the promises. Three quick ones that I love are Romans eight twenty eight, 
I hold on to this often. I share this with you often, church. I love this promise he's given to me. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his promise, that means all good things and all bad things in your life. God promises to funnel them through his hands so it works out for good in your life. Not meaning you're gonna get a Ferrari or a nice car out from your circumstance, but he promises to work the hardship in your life for good. You've seen that firsthand, Christians, in your own life. This is a good promise. And God is saying the covenant means he's faithful to the promise. If he says that, he'll be faithful to it. Another promise I love is Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, God, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pledges forevermore. So it's not in another wine or another tent. It's with a relationship with God, walking with him the way he designed us to walk. That's what gives us fullness of joy. That's what gives us pleasures forevermore. His way and walk of flourishing does. The last promise I love is Joshua 1, 9. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. That's helpful to me. Who My, my family moved away from North Carolina five years ago to help uh, be one of many families and individuals that helped start, plant this church. And wherever I would go, God would go with me. Didn't have to be afraid. Didn't have to be discouraged about what would happen. For God himself will be with me literally wherever I go. That's encouraging. God is faithful to fulfill every one of those promises. So whatever promise God has given us in the scriptures, friends, he will be faithful to fulfill in your life. Second thing, the picture. That's the promise. Here's the picture. The rainbow. Verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every relieving creature that is with you for all generations. This is true, is it not? Have you not walked outside and saw the sign in the sky? You have. For all generations, it's talking about you and me. Verse 13, I have set my bow, set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. God is giving a sign to help you and I remember that God is faithful to his promise. And I know that we've all seen like lots of different funny rainbow movies or like the double rainbow meme. I'm sure you guys have seen that one where guys are like, oh my gosh, double rainbow, oh my gosh. Like, right? But the rainbow, uh, did, it, did it show up before the flood? Could have, not exactly sure. But all I know is that God is saying that this picture, this picture is now a sign to you. When you see this in the sky, you're reminded that I am faithful. Now we know from science, of course, how the rainbow comes to be with light refracting off of water. We, we understand that, but also God is the God of science. And so this is how it all came to be. We're to see this as a reminder. This is just like my ring on my hand that we talked about last week. This is a reminder of the covenant I have with my wife, Emily, to love her, to pursue her, to sacrifice for her, to treat her better and above myself. That's my sign is this ring. God gives us the sign of the rainbow. But why a rainbow, right? Like, why not like a thumbs up or a heart in the sky? Like, why a rainbow of all things, right? It's kind of odd. It's like, oh, that's really pretty colors. And I like how they kind of go in this order. And, but why that? And so scholars have talked about this a lot. There's a lot of commentator talk on it. But I, I think the most interesting thing is that when someone was in war and they would go out to fight, this was like a little bit before days of swords, they would bring a bow, bring a bow and you would go to war on your enemy. And when you're done with the war, the soldier or military would go home and what would they would do? They would set their bow down. And what that means is that they and the enemy are at peace now. And that's what we're seeing with Noah, that through God's sacrifice of his son, that there is now peace with us. 
That's what was heralded. That's what we even talked about today in our Advent reading, that God has come to bring peace. God's son is peace on earth for us. God hung up the bow of wrath and he hung out the bow of peace. And so we see this shaping that God has now hung this up to say that if anyone comes to me, if anyone trusts in me, I have set my bow of wrath down. I will not punish. I will not give eternal wrath. I've set up, I've let that go. And today, not only do we have the rainbow as a symbol, but the cross is the symbol. The cross is a symbol that God has dealt with our sin. He's put our sin on that cross. He's executed us through Jesus on that cross. The great substitution, we should have been there, but Jesus took our place. And the cross is laid empty. The bow has been placed up to remind us that there's peace now that you have with God. He sees you as beloved and valuable. He'll watch over you, protect you, guide you, lead you, fulfill all of his promises. God poured out all the wrath on Jesus. We could pour out all the wrath on you. Every time you see a picture of the cross, every time you see the rainbow, regardless of how culture may use it, in its original way, God is saying that this is what it means. I have laid down my war against humanity. And in Christ, you can have peace and forgiveness. Always an invitation we see with the rainbow. Last thing, the purpose. The purpose. We've got the promise. We've got the picture. What's the purpose? God's purpose is a reminder with us that again, as we talked about last week, it's a reminder that we are never forgotten and we're always forgiven. Verse 14, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, God says, I will remember my covenant, meaning that God is moving towards us. We remember that God doesn't forget. Like God's not like, I was gonna send a flood today, but I saw the rainbow. It was my alarm. I'm not gonna wear, I'm not gonna like, like send a flood on all the earth. God has not forgotten this when it says, I will remember my covenant. Remember means God's moving towards the fulfillment of the covenant. That's what it means. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature on, uh, of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will set it as a reminder of the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is my sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Guys, from verses 13 to 17, he says the same thing three times in three different ways. God is like, listen up. I'm committing to you. I'm putting this sign out there to remind you that I'm always with you. You are never forgotten. You are always forgiven. Guys, you and I need the constant reminder of that. That is even why God gave us the Holy Spirit to remind you of what's true. He gave us his word to remind us of what is true. He gave us his community, this church to remind you what is true. God has given you signs and symbols and people to remind you because we often forget. And so that's why even God repeats himself. In this scripture, God says seven times the word covenant. Even the number seven being repeated, something being repeated seven times is the number of completion. God's reminding us that he completes all promises. He is the covenant maker and the covenant fulfiller. So my friend, if you feel like God is holding out on you, you feel like you're waiting for something and God is just not giving you something good, God is remembering and he will move towards the fulfillment of that promise. You are never forgotten, you are always remembered, and you are forever loved. This is what the covenant means. Let's pray together.